Good morning. We're at the uh, getting close to the Christmas time here. Let's see if I can get this thing to turn on. Changed it, make it more, a little bit more uh, realistic. Uh, I wanted to uh, respond to a couple of questions that we had last week, and so if we have time at the end, I will do that. The one question Trish asked was about primitive Baptists, and uh, and then Bill asked a little bit more about general Baptists. So if we have time at the end, I plan to do that. So let's get started with the word of prayer, and we'll uh, we'll get into our study of recent church history leading up to our church. Father, we are glad to give ourselves in service to You. We're glad to be here today. We're glad to um, to make this a part of our lives and to give ourselves fully to You. We pray that You would uh, be honored in our worship of You. We pray that we would have our eyes focused on You and uh, that You would be pleased in how we conduct ourselves and think about You today. May uh, Your name be praised in our midst and as we spread Your name throughout our relationships in, uh, in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of the most uh, dramatic events in our nation's history was the, uh, was the, uh, the American Civil War. Let's figure out how this... All right, I'll move back here. Um, and... Uh, so God had started to work here in in America in in some believers' lives, sending them across, and and so we want to see God carry this through to the end. Um, President Lincoln was uh, he wasn't uh, exactly an Orthodox Christian himself, but he did declare in the midst of the war that God was dealing with us in anger for our sins. And he observed the irony that the the North and South, he says this, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. So although you have this conflict between the North and the South, there's still a conflict, there still should be a, a a resolution between the two. And so while the North's victory may have solved the problem of of a unity um, among the country eventually, it also brought more disunity within the church. And so you had this uh, schism between the churches in the north and the churches in the south because of their differences with regard to slavery, most, most obviously. Um, many of the old denominations remained. However, they, they split apart based on what, which region they were in. And in the midst of this confusion, there were lots of uh, social and economic changes that were taking place among the American people as well. Um, and while the the uh, population of the 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 known world at that time, the known new world, had doubled, the overall population uh, within churches uh, um, did not. And so, there's a um, along with this, there were some more challenges that came to the the new uh, the new way of of life within the churches, and uh, and this created a lot of confusion. And so we have to ask ourselves at this time in, in history what would become of the Christian faith. Well, for one Christian uh, by the name of D.L. Moody, he was the most prominent evangelist of the late 19th century. 
He reached uh, multitudes in America and England with his gospel message. He he had a great desire to reach people, and he um, simplified the gospel message by uh, calling the th- or pointing to the three R's, what he calls the three R's: ruin by sin, redemption by Christ, and regener- regeneration by the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. And um, <clears throat> Moody didn't get caught up a whole lot in the social. Reform. He wasn't looking to, to, to get involved in disputes as much. His own personal statement, he says, I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said to me, Moody, save all you can. And so he left an important legacy and helped bridge the gap between the time of the, um, of, uh, of the Puritans to where we're, we're at today. And, uh, and we are indebted to his service, his reaching people for Christ in many ways. Of course, you know that he started a college as well uh, in Chicago called Moody Bible Institute. And so his ministry marked the close of an era. He died in 1899. And, uh, and, um, and after his death, there were more theological challenges. He was obviously focusing mostly on, on um, bringing people to Christ. But, but uh, among the churches, there were some great theological challenges. And the greatest one of all was um, what is known as modernism or liberalism. Okay, this isn't talking about political liberalism. Okay, that is that is a challenge. But this is talking talking about theological liberalism, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means. Um, they the, these people who are promoting this theological liberalism or modernism. Um, they repudiated biblical Christianity. They turned away from it. And this started to infect many of the churches um, just as it did many of the, the Christian universities. Modernism had arisen in part from the challenges of Darwinism and so-called higher criticism of the Bible. Darwinism, of course, had, um, had uh, basically at, tried to answer the question which one should we value most? Should we value science or should we value religion or we could say the Scriptures? And obviously you understand where Darwinism comes out on that. They, they saw science over religion. So this, they saw that all these things that are stated in the Scriptures have to be evaluated against what they would say scientific fact. Um, and then, uh, in addition to that, there are other challenges that came up through this modernism or, or liberalism. And uh, the next one that we want to look at is higher criticism. This is a method of scholarship that attacked the Bible's claim to divine inspiration, that the Bible was written, written by God. Um, it, it attacked the claims of theological truth and even historical accuracy. And so now what you have is pastors in the pulpit starting to adopt this mindset, this higher criticism, and they're not taking the Bible as the primary authority. Okay, so when God says something clearly in the Scriptures, it has to be evaluated in their minds with what they have reasoned through logic or through observation in the, in the, uh, in the world. And you can imagine how much how much trouble that's going to create for the church, and indeed it did. Um, and so they're they're putting a higher a higher claim on or a higher value on science and reason, 
over the truth that comes from the Scriptures. Um, and these, uh, these liberals, these modernists, did not hide from these beliefs. They weren't trying to do it, uh, they weren't trying to do it, uh, secretly or discreetly in any way. They, they were very open about it. Shaler Matthews, uh, was the dean of the University of Chicago Divinity School, which was a Christian university at that time, and he was a leading modernist, and here's what he says. <clears throat> the world needs new control of nature and society and is told that the Bible is verbally inerrant. It needs a new, it needs, it needs a means of composing class strife and is told to believe in the substitutionary atonement. It needs faith in the divine presence in human affairs and is told it must accept the virgin birth of Christ. So for him, he was saying that this is a problem. They're telling us. In other words, those who preach the Bible are telling us what to believe. And, and he didn't think that, that, that it should be that way, that, that we shouldn't have to submit ourselves to the Bible. And that's why he says here, like you have on the screen there, the, the historic doctrines of faith were at best irrelevant and at worst untrue. This is a very uh, strong claim of opposition against the, true, the truth that comes from the Scriptures. Well, in the midst of this modernist movement came a related movement called the Social Gospel. Um, most prominent pr proponent was Walter Rauschenbusch. He was a Baptist minister in a impoverished New York City neighborhood uh, around the turn of the century in the early 1900s. And of course, being in an impoverished area, he saw lots of uh, people that were struggling financially and he was moved by that. And um, so he wanted to do something about it. And so he wrote uh, a book called Christianity and the Social Crisis in which he argued that the true gospel consisted, consisted in working against social injustice. And um, so he, he saw that as the most important thing that we could do for people, that we could take care of their physical needs. And so this social gospel started to trickle down into many of the Protestant churches, many of the Orthodox uh, Protestant churches. And so people started to adopt a lot of these ideas that we need to help out the poor primarily as, as, uh, as a primary means of reaching them. Um, now, we could go into a lot of this, and I've talked about this before on the Sunday evening, so I don't want to get into it too deeply, but, but I think you, you, if you've been around for a while, you know where, where I stand on that. Um, I do think that, that we should be, have concern for the poor, but as a church, and this is where this social gospel is coming to the front, is as a church, we have to be careful about, uh, about making that our priority, okay? And that's the key word there, priority. Because the greatest need that man has is not physical, right? What is their greatest need? It's spiritual. Okay, so we need to we need to make sure that we're reaching them for God. Um, and you see so, all sorts of problems with this if it's taken to the extreme, like the Salvation Army, where they do what I would call a bait and switch. If you listen to this message from God, then we will give you the food. And I think Jesus Himself would be completely against that because there were times in His ministry where He did feed the 5,000, it's true. Where He did feed the 4,000, but if you look in John chapter 6, you're going to find that, that He turns people away. The disciples come to Him at several times and say, Jesus, they're all waiting for You. They want You to, to come and heal them and give them things. 
And Jesus says, uh, no, we have more people to reach. We need to go somewhere else. We need to go to another city. Now, if Jesus was mostly concerned about their physical needs, then why wouldn't He help those people? And in, another, in John chapter 6, as I just mentioned, He says there um, that he tur- after His teaching, He turned many of them away. Because, and, and in that teaching, He said, the only reason that you're coming to Me is because I've filled your stomachs. That's the only reason. So you're happy to listen to me speak as long as you're, you're fed. But when I stop feeding you, you don't care about spiritual things. And so I'm going to turn to some other people and preach to them. And so that's why I say it can be dangerous if we are not careful with how high we put a priority on, on taking care of, of physical needs. Um, certainly, we don't want to be cold to the poor um, but as a church, we need to recognize that there is a great responsibility for us to reach them spiritually and we don't want them ever to have an attachment to us just for what we can give them. Okay, it should be uh, attachment to the Gospel because of what God can do. They see their greatest need. Well, modernism, liberalism, soon captivated most of the faculties of the American Universities, which were mostly Christian at that time. Remember, Harvard, Yale, University of Chicago all started out that way. And so as you start to capture the universities, you start to capture the thought of the younger people. And obviously, when they go out from there, they they grow up and they start to act upon these ideals. Well, thankfully, the Lord had a, a an opposition against this movement uh, he did not permit the modernism and social gospel liberalism to go unopposed. And uh, so there were many Christians who stood out against this. And this is a hard thing to stand against because anytime you say, no, this is not the way we should go, okay, it's one thing to say, we need to re- not reject science, but, but we can't uh, bring science and put it over the Scriptures. That's one thing. That, that to me seems very clear that we should not do that. But it's another thing to actually oppose the social gospel. Because when you do that, you sound heartless, don't you? I mean, you sound like you don't care about the poor, that, that, um, that you're not concerned about their needs. And so these people, there, there were some who, who attacked, counter, counterattacked against this modernism and liberalism. And in a series of essays between 1910 and 1915, uh, several men wrote what's called the Fundamentals, a testimony to the truth. And... Um, and they were trying to defend the basics of Christian orthodoxy, including famous uh, Presbyterian uh, minister, or I'm sorry, Presbyterian professor from Princeton, B.B. Warfield, also uh, Southern Baptist leader E.Y. Mullins, and evangelist Reuben Torrey, um, and uh, not to mention uh, dispensationalist C.I. Schofield. So these four men are writing these articles called The Fundamentals, and in, in there, they're trying to set aside the differences to try to, to, to hold the ground with regard to the truth of the Scriptures. They were concerned that, um, that these things were, were made clear. Um, trying to find where I have that quotation in my, my notes. but Oh, I see it here. So this is a um, quotation from one of these essays that, that was written by these men. It says that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, was born of a virgin... Okay, these types of things, by the way, don't not something that you can prove scientifically, right? You've got to believe it by faith. That's why we need faith over reason. That Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, 
died on the cross for the salvation of men and women, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and would return at the end of the age in great glory. That sin is real, not the product of fevered imaginations, that God's grace and not human efforts effort is the source of salvation, and that the church is God's institution designed to build up Christians and to spread the gospel. So this is the counterattack against modernism. They wanted to make sure that people understood that, that the direction that those modernists were taking the churches was not a good one. And so those who united around this essay called The Fundamentals soon became known as, guess what? The Fundamentalists. Okay, This is where they began, the early 1900s. Um, and it was simply like it sounds. The fundamentals are, Fundamentalists are those who believe in the fundamentals of Christian orthodoxy. And uh, so in 1922, there was a liberal Baptist minister who tried to oppose this, these writings about, that came from the fundamentalists. And here's w- what the title of his essay was, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Well, his assault was uh, reprinted and sent throughout the nations and many people started to, 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 um, to like this sort of idea, to oppose the fundamentalists. And that's why Clarence McCartney came. He was a Presbyterian minister. He came in response with his own widely publicized sermon called Shall Unbelief Win? See how, see how McCartney takes it? Uh, they're saying, okay, they're trying to say fundamentalism is pitted against uh, what, what they would probably agree is modernism. But what McCartney said is, you want to be on that side? If you, you want to oppose fundamentalists, here's what you are. Unbelieving. Okay, if you're going to follow liberalism, modernism, it's actually another gospel because it actually moves the Bible from the place of authority and moves it down underneath science. And be- before long, it becomes a useless document, a useless writing. And that's why McCartney called, called it unbelief. And so now you have some clear battle lines drawn. This is not just, you know, it, everybody has their own opinion type thing. This is, this is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Uh, particularly in the minds of the fundamentalists, that's the way they saw it. And um, one of the great intellectual giants who was a fundamentalist was a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen. He was from Princeton Seminary. He was a professor there and uh, a very orthodox man. And he came along in the line of uh, Alexander, Hodge, and Warfield. And he did a great job to distill all the problems that were going on between fundamentalists and modernists and he distilled it down into a book that, that is still published today called Christianity and Liberalism. He argued that the, this dispute was not between two emphases of interpretations, but rather it was between two entirely different religions. That's what I was just talking about before with McCartney. Here's what he writes. The great redemptive religion which has always been known as Christianity, is battling against a totally diverse type of religious belief, which is only the more destructive of the Christian faith because it makes us of traditional Christian terminology. This modern, non-redemptive religion is called modernism or liberalism. The many varieties of modern liberal religion are rooted in naturalism, that is, the denial of any entrance of the creative power of God as distinguished from the ordinary course of nature in connection with the origin of of Christianity. So, he, he again is drawing the line in the sand. 
Are you going to believe what the scriptures say? Or are you going to believe? Uh, you're going to follow human reason, and uh, human reason, uh, humanism leads to naturalism, and this this is what this modernist movement was. Um, <clears throat> The, uh, the signature event of the 1920s with regard to this controversy is something that you probably are very familiar with, and that's called the, the Scopes Monkey Trial of, 19, of the 1920s. In the Scopes Trials, the uh, Tennessee school teacher John Scopes was arrested for teaching evolution, which was a violation at that time of state law. Well, Mencken, H.L. Uh, Mencken, was one of the admirers of J. Gresham Machen, and he attended the trial and wrote a daily column throughout uh, the nation, straightforwardly uh, ridiculing the fundamentalists. So he started out as a supporter of Machen, but then he started to write a column throughout these trials, and it was it was um, very satirical, very um, demeaning, the way that he portrayed fundamentalists. Um, and obviously, he um, was uh, was in support of Darwinism. The lead attorney for the prosecution was. Uh, William Jennings Bryan, who you see up there, he was a fundamentalist in the, the later stages of his long public career. Um, William Jennings Bryan was a three-time uh, nominee for president. He was Secretary of State under President Wilson. So this was long before you see this picture here. If you look up at some of the older pictures of him, um, he was probably in his 30s when all that was going on. But as he got later on in his life, he was, uh, he was very committed to fundamentalism. And, uh, and wanted to make sure that this, uh, this law was upheld in the schools. Um, he disbelieved evolution, obviously, and, uh, but his, his main concern here was not just to eliminate evolution. That's important. Okay? Eliminate the idea that, that this is a, a real, uh, that this is a, a legitimate theory of how the world came in. He wanted to eliminate that, surely, but his main goal was to show that the, the Bible has the authority over human reason. And he saw this trial as a linchpin to that sort of um, understanding. So he defended the traditional values of common citizens and, um, and tried to point out in the trial the dangerous consequences of Darwinism that would, that would come. Um, he felt that it would threaten the poor and minorities. Um, so... Most historians argue that after the 25 Scopes trial that fundamentalists retreated uh, from public life and shame. You, you know how that trial ended and, uh, and spent the next decades in isolated comfort of their own churches. So while they lost this battle, they felt like they had to retreat a little bit and, uh, and just kind of keep these things in, within their own churches. And that's partly true, but it actually misses the mo most important development in this ongoing controversy, and that is the denominational battles. In the 20s and 30s, fundamentalists and modernists thought, uh, fought fiercely over the major denominations and seminaries, particularly within the Baptist and Presbyterian denominations. And because of this trial and its, its victory for the modernists, uh, they started to win out in these denominations. Even Machen threw in the towel, resigning from Princeton because he couldn't hold his ground any longer. They uh, uh, all but forced him to leave. So he went and started his own seminary, Westminster Seminary, and uh, 
he left the Presbyterian Church to begin an Orthodox Presbyterian Church movement. All right, so that's kind of how it started. There's a little bit more that that we'll have to uh, to look at here in just a second with regard to um, the controversies that's going on at that time. But are there any questions so far on this this dispute that's going on for the early decades of the 1900s? All right, well, we need to move on because we do have uh, a lot more to cover. And the next thing we want to look at is neo-orthodoxy. <clears throat> um, so just as the fundamentalists went into retreat, the modernists celebrated their apparent triumph in this this trial. And they uh, they began... A, the, there, there were other theologians that began to uh, challenge this liberalism because they felt that that was too far, but they weren't all the way over on the side of the fundamentalists. And so that's where neo-orthodoxy comes in. It, it would be something uh, in between liberalism and fundamentalism. This new theology <coughs> conceded some of the liberal criticisms, criticisms of the Bible's authority. So it still did recognize higher criticism, remember, which is to, to reason Trump's faith. We can, we can uh, take our human reason, our science, and, and determine whether or not the, the Scriptures are true from that. Um, but they still ignored some problems in liberalism and, uh, and did hold to some orthodox beliefs like human sin and divine sovereignty. The three most prominent <coughs> exponents of uh, <coughs> neo-orthodoxy were first Karl Barth, and then we'll look at um, the two brothers, Reinhold, uh, Reinhold and Richard Niebuhr. Bart first achieved his acclaim with the publication of his commentary on Romans, and he also wrote a systematic theology called Church Dogmatics. His neo-orthodoxy emphasized our sinfulness and our absolute need for God. Um, however, he believed that the Bible was not the absolute authority. So, we could say that he did have some positive things that we could look at. He, he believed that God was sovereign and that we were sinful, but he didn't see the Bible as the absolute authority. Rather, he said that it only contained the Word of God. In other words, this is not the Word of God. This is not God speaking to us, but it only contained some words from God. And uh, it's interesting to hear that language from Karl Barth because in the writing of our, const our statement of faith for our church, you'll see um, he says the Bible only contains the Word of God. And in our statement of faith, this is what it reads. If you look down about the fourth line, that it has God for its author, talking about the Scriptures, and is the Word of God and does not contain the Word of God. This is directly against the claim that Karl Barth was making. Our church started in 1939 and these things were going on in the late 20s and they were trying to defend, to stand up for fundamentalist truth. Okay, so remember, neo-orthodoxy is not all the way over. They do oppose liberalism over there, but they're not all the way over to where we are. And so they wanted to get rid of this idea that the Bible is not the absolute authority because the church that's founded uh, on anything other than the Scriptures is not going to be a church with a great foundation. It, it would be like a church that that is uh, built on sinking sand. You could have the, the beautiful, most beautiful building constructed, but if it's built on sand over time, it will collapse. And that's why I really appreciate our early uh, leaders of this church, Calvin and Luther, we'll talk about later, 
um, not the reformers, but, but the fundamentalist gentleman who started this church. <clears throat> well, the other two prominent men of neo-orthodoxy were uh, two brothers, Richard and Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, and who do we have here first? This is, uh, you can't quite see their, his name. There, that's Richard Niebuhr. Uh, they graduated from Yale, and um, Richard taught at Yale for the rest of his career, and he delivered one of the most pithy denunciations of liberalism ever. Okay, Remember, they are opposed to liberalism, even though they're not over as far as we, we were, our founding um, church members were. A God without wrath, he says, brought men without sin into the kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. His brother, Reinhold, um, served on the faculty of Union Theological Seminary, and uh, he opposed theological liberalism as well. Um, for his part, by the 40s, he emerged as one of the most prominent theologians in America. Here, you see him cover, on the cover of Time magazine. He lectured widely across the country and engaged with leading intellectuals on policy making and, and things like that. Many know him as the author of the Serenity Prayer used at Alcoholics Anonymous, which is, Oh God, give us the serenity to accept what, we, what cannot be changed, the courage to change what should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish one from the other. And that's still used today. He spent his energies urging the church to engage in social and political action, uh, whether it be racism or poverty or the Nazi threat uh, in World War II against America or even the communist menace in the Cold War. Uh, he always cautioned, though, against liberalism and warned that, that all human action was tainted by self-interest, and so we have to be guarded against the sinful world. Well, before we look at our own local church, I want to comment quickly on the amazing development in the 20th century, the expansion of the church around the globe. Remember, the World Missions Movement started in the 1800s, and uh, there were some who were opposed to it, but it, it started to expand more and more. And so while in, the, in 1960, there were two-thirds of all evangelicals in the world were in Europe and North America, by 2000, the, ra the ratio had reversed. There were only two-thirds of evangelicals in the world uh, were, were not in Europe and North America. They were in the other continents. And so, during that time, you see some of the most dramatic growth in churches around the world, but you also see a great amount of persecution. In fact, by some estimates, there were more Christians martyred in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. And we don't think about that too much because we don't see a whole lot of martyrdom happening in our area or in our country. Uh, but that sort of thing is still happening today in, in some of these closed countries closed to the gospel. And so, we should not be surprised by this because in the book of Acts you see that as there is growth, there's also persecution, isn't there? There are, there are people who are opposed to the gospel. Satan's trying to, to, to break down the doors of the church. And when I say church, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about people. Well, uh, this may be a little bit more... Uh, uh, something that would, would be of interest to you, and that's the history of our church. Our church goes back to the early 20th century. In April 1939, we had a group of concerned believers meet 
in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Luther. And they wanted to consider whether they should start an independent, fundamentalist Baptist church in the city of Royal Oak. And there were six couples attending. Well, after prayer, they decided that the Lord was leading them to hold services in the old congregational church on 13 Mile Road uh, between Rochester and Main Street. The building at that time was known as the Women's Club of Royal Oak and was rented for $8 per week. So it worked out kind of nicely. It may have been a lot of money back then, but would have worked out really nicely for us if we were starting today for eight bucks, huh? Well, they met in June on June 4th after having several of these meetings, June 4th, 1939, and they wanted to officially charter the church under the name Oak Missionary Baptist Church. And it had uh, 11 charter members, and Pastor D.O. Calvin was the um, the one who was elected to be the pastor of the new church. Thomas Luther was elected as the church clerk, and um, and uh, so that's how it began. So again, that's why I say Luther and Calvin were the two men, prominent men, who started our church. Uh, in March of 1941, a committee was formed to secure lots on. Um, on uh, Rochester Road, and they erected a building. In August of 1942, the first unit of the building was complete, and and services were held. What I what I like about this uh, this early bulletin is uh, you can see all their service times and uh, things. They have one thing that might be a little bit hard to see, but they have a radio program that was on Sundays. Looks like at seven o'clock. Um, they had a youth group on 7:30 on Tuesday, Wednesday evening worship. And uh, what's also interesting are these phone numbers that they had back then. 3-5065 was the church number. L-I, I'm, I'm not sure what that means. I assume that's the old ro- rotary dial phone? Or? It's still 5-4, but it's, if you look, there were letters. There were three letters above um, on a touchstone phone, but it's on a, obviously, a touchstone. It's really okay. Lincoln 3. So 5-4-3 is what you're saying? So back in those days, okay. what's the phone number? Lincoln 3, what is it? What? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, and he also gives his. Uh, well, that was the, the church phone was Lincoln four three eight thirty eight hundred. Then he puts his personal number on there too. So he he was yeah yeah exactly. He was there from uh, nineteen thirty nine to nineteen fifty six. So uh, he was there for sixteen years, seventeen years. He resigned to start another church. Uh, following him was Dr. John Hunter. He was at that time the pastor of the Central Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, before he came here. He accepted the call and began in 1957, on the first day of 1957. And during his time, he changed the name, or he, under his leadership, the church changed the name to Ambassador Baptist Church and Bible Institute of Royal Oak. And so here's another bulletin here that they had. And, and again, you still have the same church number, but different uh, cell number, as Mark says. Uh, and this is this one that I found, but this cracked me up because the, the words at the top of Blessed Christmas and a Happy New Year, and they, they don't look too blessed or happy there. But <laughs> I'm sure that was just... Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure they were happy to, to be here. Um, so they were here from 1957 through 1965. Following him was Pastor Edward Boone, who was here from the 65 to 67, so two, two years in total. Following him are, uh, is a man that you probably know, and that's Pastor Jack Richard. Uh, he started in 19, 
68 and went till 1973, so for five years. Under his ministry, the building went through a facelift. So uh, here's here's what it looks like before. Let's see if did I have a picture of the earlier church? Yeah. I I kind of skipped over that, but that was actually kind of interesting. Yeah, it's kind of hard to see here, but um, you see a tree over here uh, out these doors, which these weren't actually doors at the time. The front doors were here, as I understand. And this was the this was the back of the church, the front of the church. Everything's reversed around, and uh, you had no doors on either side, from what I can understand. So you come right out from the doesn't look like they have a sidewalk, but go right into the to the the church building up there in the front. So under Pastor Richard, what happened was um, they uh, they made a, a bit of a change here. You can see the the veneer, the brick veneer that the, that was put on. No more door here some uh, stained glass, and now the, the doors are there in the back. That was... Uh, what year did you come, Sarah? Did you guys come during Pastor Richard? or six? Okay, yeah. So you're here for that project. Yeah, because I think Clayton's told me about how that, that all went down. He was the project manager for it, and it was pretty, pretty significant. What year did you come, Mike? 71. 71, so you're here during that time, too. What, was, the, before, though. So, yeah, was the building already redone? No. When I first came. Yeah. Okay. So this is 1972. I don't see an air conditioning unit there either. No, no. This is, this is 1989 with the um, the 50th anniversary of our church. Pastor Richard, and there he is speaking. At, oh, yeah, you guys recognize that other sharp-looking guy there on the left. Yeah, he hasn't changed a whole lot, has he? Um, there's Pastor Richard uh, speaking at the, the anniversary in 1989. Of course, following him was Pastor Bob McLaughlin, who was... Our longest tenured pastor, 25 years from 1973 to 1998. Uh, he started after coming from church in Oglesby, Illinois. And under his leadership, he paid down all the debt that came as a result of the, the building project, that, which was about $41,000, significant amount of money at that time. And uh, moved the office, which was back where a lot of the choir supplies are, are kept in that front right door over there, moved his his office down to downstairs. They t- took one of the nurseries there and and uh, put a wall in it and um, and had a nice office down there. So that was 1991. He resigned in 1998 in December, and he's currently the pastor at Herring Lake uh, Baptist Church in Frankfort, Michigan. So here's uh here's one from 1975, um, which was towards the beginning of his ministry. And here's a picture of some of the the classrooms during that time, and you you may recognize some of these people. I don't. I only recognized a few. Um, this is a beginner's department in the mid '60s, and uh, here's the junior and senior high under uh, Bob Melvin and E. S. Bird, Zelman Richard, and Debbie Bird. So pretty. Yeah, here's a couple people you might recognize here. Mary and um, and Louise there. Still working in the beginner's department and had a little bit more of a handful. What's that? That is? Who said they could do that? And then here's uh, what they call Flood the Church Sunday in 1975. They had 212 in attendance. You see the auditorium, for those of you who are newer than this, auditorium had a little bit different layout, didn't it? No sound room. Yeah. Yeah, no center aisle, right? 
Yeah. Meyer's sitting in the back right there. I was going to say, I think I'm in this picture somewhere, too. Yes, you are. You're up like in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that picture. The only person I recognize in this, this is a primary department, is that guy right there looks like a Sally, doesn't it? Yeah. So, that's the primary department in 1975, and here is Clayton teaching his class, the junior department, um, part of his faithful ministry for these last uh, 40 years. Um, so, there's Pastor McLaughlin at the, the uh, 50th anniversary and picture of the church. Uh, see, there's no center aisle here. It's a bit from the reverse. And you see a little bit of the landscaping start to come in into play. You got a new sign here that wasn't there before. Following him was James Lawler. I think this is a picture of him. I found this on the Internet. Yeah, so you guys are familiar with him. 1999 to 2000. He's currently the pastor in uh, Victory Baptist Church in New Lenox, Illinois, which is near Joliet. In November of 2000, uh, you have uh, Adam and Jessica Talbert. Adam was the pastor from 2000 to 2008. And uh, so this is when you have the remodeling of the, uh, the auditorium. A lot of these uh, glass doors that you see here. Um, he's now the pastor at First Baptist Church in Hoopston. Of course, he was just here a couple weeks ago, so you're familiar with him. And uh, you might be familiar with this family too. This uh, we started in 2009. Um, I started officially. My family came with me. Um, and, uh, well, that's not very helpful. Uh, I'll read that for you later. Um, what will we do from here? I, our goal at this church is to resemble what we read about in Acts chapter 2, which is a community of believers who are committed to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship of believers, and breaking of bread and prayer. And by the grace of God, we try to continue on with that legacy um, that that was started for us. So before I uh, conclude with uh, a quote from Augustine, are there any questions that you have on on any of this that we talked about the recent church history? Yeah. Yeah, I personally don't think we have to have the uh, the label a fundamentalist, and the I think the biggest problem with it is there are people in that that claim that name for themselves, uh, like the the um, the uh, the people the Hiles Anderson type people, okay, people that we wouldn't we wouldn't uh, fellowship with because of their beliefs. So if they claim the the name, we don't necessarily have to keep it. And so I'm on the same page with Pastor Doran if you've been to his, uh, or if you've heard any of what he's had to say with it. Um, I think the most important thing is to say to the truth of the Scripture, the name's not the most important thing. So, Bill? Excuse me, these two brothers, I can't pronounce the name. Yeah. Uh, which, where are you at there? Oh, uh, Richard Niebuhr there? Yeah. Um, where does this come from? A God without wrath? This is a... Yeah, he, he, he's, uh, he's coming from a neo-Orthodox point of view, so he's not on the same page with us fully, and he's not, and he's not on the same page as the liberals either. Yeah. I 
I think he's trying to refute the liberals there, but I'm not sure of the context in which he which he puts that. Yeah, let me see if I got. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, this is how this uh, should have been set up, and I'm not sure if I said this or not, but uh, he delivered one of the most potent, pithy denunciations of liberalism. So he's trying to he's trying to oppose liberalism, and I think what Trish is saying is right in a sarcastic way that this is what you're going to end up with. Right, right. Yeah, and again, for those two guys, the Niebuhr brothers, and um, and also for Karl Barth, we wouldn't be on the same page with them, but they do have some helpful stuff because they they are not completely liberal in their in their theology. All right, so um, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to to follow through with with how our how we were initially um, founded. So we spent the last 14 weeks looking at God's salvific work in salvation and His sovereign grace and His care for His church. I want to close with a voice from the past and a vision for the future that comes from Augustine, who was uh, a believer and uh, surveyed God's work in, in one of his masterpieces called The City of God. And we'll make this the conclusion of this series. He says, We look to the eternal rest, not only of the Spirit, but of the body also. There we shall be still and see. We shall see and we shall love. We shall love and we shall praise. Behold what will be in the end without end. For what is our end but to reach that kingdom which has no end? And now as I think, I have discharged my debt with the completion by God's help of this huge work. It may be too much for some, too little for others, Of both these groups, I ask forgiveness, but of those for whom it is enough, I make this request, that they do not thank me, but join with me in rendering thanks to God. So, Augustine, I think, points toward the future and also looks back at at the great care of God that He's had on the church as a whole throughout the past, and we can can be thankful for that and, and have something to look forward to in the future since... Ultimately, the church of Jesus Christ will not be uh, prevailed against by Satan and his his enemies, and uh, Satan and his allies, I should say. Let's pray and we'll uh, be dismissed. Father, we are grateful to see how you have um, brought us to this place. We're thankful for the foundation that our church specifically has had. We're thankful for those who did oppose liberalism in these uh, early decades of the 1900s, we recognize that that sort of idea still remains and uh, and is still prevalent in many churches. And we pray that you'd help us to guard against that, that we would stand on the shoulders of those before us, that we would uh, see the, val- the value of, uh, of uh, making your word the absolute authority. We ask for wisdom as we do that. It's not easy to determine uh, what exactly is uh, what exactly to make of a lot of these new doctrines, and so it requires study and wisdom and and understanding, and we need your help to do that. May we be serious about 
our commitment to this church and to this work that you've started and that you will continue uh, for as long as as uh, as you are you have planned to do. We we know that you haven't promised specifically to allow our church to to remain all the way till the end, but we would love for that to be the case until Jesus Christ comes. May we be faithful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.